against that barrage of applause, I've just swallowed that um, pastel that um, Alexa in the green room. <laughs> Alexi, who I should point out has a cold, um, and is therefore heroically um, battling through it this evening, um, gave us all these marvellous little pastels to suck upon, and um, the the the. The welcome shock of your applause sent mine trickling down my throat. <laughs> but uh, that's probably... That probably He's comes under... Go the, right to TMI. That comes under the TMI classification, I was about to say. Indeed, yes. Um, when we were discussing which shows we might want to include this evening, um, Alexi pointed out uh, that uh, Julian Opie was having an exhibition and um, um, uh, that his that the Listen Gallery had billed it as the first ever Julian Opie solo show in New York, which I immediately questioned because, Sorry. in fact, he had a huge outdoor solo exhibition at um, City Park, um, which should have been included in their estimation. Well, this is really fancy. This is a, an upgrade from Bottles. Um, nice. Good job. But, yes... Well yes, done. yes. Not much spillage. That's, that's impressive. Sick as Congratulations. You are. Um, do I want to tell this anecdote? It's a little saucy. We haven't really. This is like the warm up. You know, when you see those, um, those outtake um, uh, recordings of. Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Trevor Noah. They, sometimes the best stuff is the stuff that's not really broadcast and it's just uh, shared with the audience in, in warm up moments. And, and this could be one of those moments. Um, on the other hand, it could just be uh, the, the Adderall taking effect, and don't worry, <laughs> everything will be fine in a minute. But um, uh, Alexei said, well, we might want to consider Julian Opie into the mix, and we, he and I uh, were talking back and forth, Julian Opie, and I, um, I, I said, um, I always get excited uh, when I see one of those walking women, he said, and, and he said, wrote back, uh, TMI. So TMI is his, um, it, it comes often from... You've softened that story. I softened it slightly, it's true, yes. But, uh, yeah. We're now officially on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the April 2nd, 2019 edition of the review panel. I think you probably all know the format, but let me remind those uh, who need reminding and share with those who are new to our series, the review panel uh, works on the principle that we've all been to see four exhibitions uh, around New York City. Uh, we are going to show nicely made little videos that uh, refresh our memory as to what these shows uh, look like. Um, and we are then uh, going to discuss them one by one um, as a panel. After the first two uh, shows are reviewed, uh, we have uh, some time set aside for the audience to share their opinions and what we've just discussed, and then we repeat the exercise. The other piece of housekeeping to share with you is that our, our dear friends, the um, art committee of One Grand Army Plaza, One Gap, the Richard Meyer-designed white um, uh, apartment building on Grand Army Plaza just over the road from the library very generously uh, host an after party for um, the panel and uh, gives us an opportunity to see their current uh, one-person exhibition of the 
And of course, I want to thank the Brooklyn Public Library, our very generous hosts and sponsors, and to mention something that um, is very important, which is that this event is recorded uh, for later podcast, and that podcasts going right back to the beginnings of the series in 2004. At the, it, it spent its first decade at the National Academy Museum in Manhattan, and that you can um, hear podcasts of almost every uh, review panel that there has been um, at artcritical.com, if you go to the review panel and then look through the archives. Well, now my pleasurable duty is to introduce the panel, one I've already kind of introduced as a purveyor of pastels and uh, a censor of uh, personal confessions when it comes to art. Uh, I didn't censor anything. It was you. <laughs> and that is Alexi Worth. Alexi oh. Worth is a painter uh, who is also an art writer. Uh, he um, was, for some years, a very active critic on the scene with uh, uh, writing uh, capsule reviews on The New Yorker and uh, penning um, uh, reviews at, at Art Forum and other places. He's taken a, a, a principled leave of absence from reviewing per se, uh, although um, his art writing persists in uh, the form of catalogue essays. Most recently, he authored the um, essay for the Jasper Johns exhibition that's still showing at Matthew Mark's gallery in Chelsea. Um, and um, the opposite end of the spectrum, so to speak, uh, he is also um, um, a pioneer of the, um, uh, the, the pithy uh, uh, review uh, that one can see on Instagram. You can follow him there. Martha Schwendener is um, a, a, an art critic at the New York Times, uh, where she's been for quite a number of years. And she's, she, like Alexi, is a veteran of the review panel. And uh, she is... Um, a distinguished academic. She teaches at the Steinhardt School of Art at New York University and, and has taught over the years at other institutions as well, including FIT and Pratt. And um, our th our, my third guest is somebody who falls into uh, what's becoming a new and to me very exciting tradition that occasionally amongst these professional reviewers, uh, we like to throw the cat among the pigeons and uh, remind ourselves and the audience, that art criticism does not, or it does, but it should not, live in a bubble of its, entirely of its own making. And that um, if, if one can bring in uh, a highly intelligent um, voice from another discipline, uh, an adjacent discipline, um, it can um, perhaps keep us a little bit on our toes, as well as, of course, expanding the um, range of critics who are out there. Now, uh, Nicholas Papas is um, a, a philosopher, or a f professor of philosophy, to be more precise, perhaps. He is um, the chair of the philosophy program at the um, philosophy department at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Um, and he's uh, the author of a number of uh, books. He's an uh, internationally renowned uh, expert on Plato. Um, uh, but he's also written uh, what I found to be a, a really exciting book recently uh, because of my personal interest in these matters, um, uh, a philosophical study of fashion, um, in, a, in a manner of fashion, um, uh, a book titled The Philosopher's New Clothes. 
Um, and um, uh, as far as his not being a critic is concerned, uh, I should m moderate uh, and qualify that in, in two regards. Uh, number one, um, he has written a couple of articles, and I hope they're just the, the, the beginning of many more to come, for artcritical.com, one on um, emotions in ancient Greek art, and the other um, a, a very um, uh, philosophically cogent um, uh, review of Adrian Piper's retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art. Um, Adrian Piper, as I'm sure you all know, is also a, a, a trained academic philosopher, so it felt appropriate to, um, to bring his eye to bear on that subject. And the other um, caveat to saying that Nick is not an art critic is to point out that he's married to a painter, and therefore, whether he likes it or not, he is a critic um, for at least uh, one individual um, on a regular basis. Very so, nice ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panel. <laughs> Fantastic. The last thank you is to, um, is to Greg Richards, who records uh, these programs for us. Uh, and um, takes care of all the uh, techie stuff. And that's a good moment to say, uh, Greg, we're ready to look at the first uh, set of videos. We're going to start the evening uh, looking at Charles Ledre and Hannah Black. And um, panellists, we can swivel around. In his miniaturist, fabricated, faux-ready-mades, Charles Ledre mines unexpected treasure from hidden seams of blue-collar Americana. Known previously for thimble-sized ceramics, Lilliputian overalls and nostalgic regalia from the Century 21 exposition of his Seattle boyhood, Ledre is a slow and painstaking worker who exhibits infrequently, but with enormous impact. His first solo show with Peter Freeman is also his first New York show since the traveling retrospective that arrived at the Whitney in 2010, and sees a fantastic range of themes and forms rendered both meticulously and out of scale, including a janitor's closet, a personal library discarded on the sidewalk, bags of cement, a red carpet, bricks, and of course his trademark overalls and work vests. In his nimble and humorous hands, overlooked lives find themselves simultaneously poeticized and deconstructed. British-born artist Hannah Black shot to art world notoriety during the 2017 Whitney Biennial when she authored an open letter to its curators calling for the removal and destruction of Dana Schutz's open casket. It may come as no surprise that her own work takes radical political positions, though often drawing on discourses as disparate as science, mysticism and ecology, as well as politics and economics. Her practice extends to sculpture, new media, writing, often in a highly poetic vein, and performance. Her installation at Performance Space New York, Beginning, End, None, is an elaboration of a work first presented in Vienna in 2017, building on the notion of a biological cell as a factory. She presents cells as, quote, symbols of mass production 
that stand for the victory of capitalism, social control, and the construction of the individual. It seems to be my evening for confessions, so one more confession. Um, before we selected Charles Ledre for the review panel, I wrote a little blurb, because I'm a big enthusiast for his work. And um, I wrote it very quickly and then went out for a walk. And as I was walking the dog around the block, she suddenly felt her neck being yanked and her owner running home in a panic. Because I had actually written that um, I, the, my first words were something that took the effect of ready-mades. His ready-mades, da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, of course, the ready-made, as we know, is that convention of the found object enlisted, press-ganged, uh, with no intention on the part of its maker, into becoming an artwork, uh, a thing in the world, like, the, well, the first one, obviously, uh, Duchamp's um, fountain, the, the, the urinal, the shop-bought urinal, is signed and submitted and inverted and becomes a fountain. Um, so here am I writing about work that is fabricated ex nihilo and calling them ready-mades, uh, uh, revealing a brainstorm, or um, uh, if left in the literature, revealing profound ignorance of art <laughs> and its terminology. But as Van Gogh once said, I wouldn't have wanted to miss that error. There's something um, compelling about fabricating what will look like the ready-made um, with Robert Gober, who's uh, obviously a master in that genre, um, uh, meticulously to scale fabricating things that are correlatives of um, actual simulacrum of things, but nonetheless somehow inflected with just enough of the handmadeness to subvert the, 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 the more... To, to confound and to intrigue the more patient viewer. Uh, with Ledre, it's the shift in scale more than anything else that uh, takes us from actuality to representation. It's, it's, it's a, it seems a very philosophical... Um, uh, that's not a cue to say that you're the one I'm going to call upon. <laughs> it's all, uh, but it is a very philosophical or epistemological kind of um, art in a way. But at the same time, with Ledre, I always find immensely human, humorous, personal, and open to, to much else that could be going on. Um, Martha, where do you locate um, Ledre within the whole discourse of ready-madeness, fabrication? What, what do you think is going on with his um, aesthetic? I never really um, thought about it in terms of the ready-made um, because um, I just did not. Um, in earlier years, as you noted already, uh, he doesn't show very often, so I hadn't seen his work in a while, and this is kind of a new direction um, in certain senses. I used to think of it in terms of craft, you know, and time, and um, if you're familiar you are familiar with his work, it was a lot of ceramics and a lot of sewing. And you have some of that here, but it's kind of shifted into a different um, 
place. So do you want me to answer that specific question? Where do I you think of it You know the review panel. David Cohen <laughs> asks a very loaded specific question, and you say that's a very interesting question. I'll come to that I'm in going a to minute. talk about what I want and to talk ignore, about. And you talk about what you want to talk about. So right. please talk about um, what you want to talk so, about. Yeah. So um, I, I, what I would say I was surprised by or is of note in this um, exhibition is that it was more tied towards things like... Um, sort of quoting certain artworks. So Carl Andre, Jasper Johns, um, you, you know, you can sort of go through and see this is the Carl Andre work, this is the Jasper Johns. That's a new thing for me. I would say overall, the question of scale is really what's key with his work, always key with his work, whether it's craft and the amount of, you know, this kind of accretion of objects, and so it becomes this idea, oh my God, they're 2,000 little pots or something like that. Um, the, the fine line for me that is always being skirted is that, you know, whether it's a, you know, like a cute little, when things are little, they can be cute. That's a problem. Mm. So um, I would say with this show, it was skirting a little bit clo closer to cuteness than it has in the past to me, like a cute little life jacket and a cute little something or other. Not the bricks, but some of the other stuff. So I'm not sure, um, and also maybe this comes back to the ready-made, it's a little bit more specific than in earlier years. Yes. Uh, so I don't know. I'm a little on the fence on this one, but okay. that's yeah. what I got. Um, Alexi, could, could you tell us anything about ready-madeness? Um, no, I'm going <laughs> to ignore your, your question, too, and answer and follow from maybe more directly from Martha's, because I, I am one of the things that struck me about the scale, and this is also part of your question, I suppose, and the diminutiveness and the danger of them being cute, which I felt also. I was one of the times I visited, he was there, Charles Le himself, and he is a big guy. Yeah. He's like a Midwestern football player, farmer body. Big, everything's big. Bull neck, powerful build. Somebody who feels like he's, I, standing near him, I felt suddenly like, oh man, I'm a shrimp. And, and I felt that the diminutiveness of it, of it was, you know, sometimes artists are like dog owners, they're like their work. But <laughs> in his case, it seemed to me interestingly, utterly unlike it. Everything is reduced. And it's, there's a kind of tenderness to that, a kind of maybe the kind of powerful hulking body's desire to love, to cherish another kind of scale. Um, but, but certainly one could frame it and think about it as a kind of tenderness that's, that's over tender or, or a little glib or something. That, that felt like it flickered through some of those pieces and the ones I was less interested in. Mm. Um, but... I came away, I think my two big impressions were, one, I just admire so much the, the overall powerfulness of his delicacy and thoroughness, the feeling that he's, he's so there, he's so willing to make everything mm. just the way it should be, to the precision of, of it's, you can't say touch exactly, although I, there is a kind of touch. One of the things I love best was the, there were several pieces with pegboards, and you, it's one of the places where you see the non-mechanical fracture, because the, the grid of the pegboards, which if they're factory-made is a perfect grid here, it's just the tiniest bit off, but you can register, 
It's so close to being right. Your eye can't help seeing it immediately, but it's so close. His effort, he's not trying to kind of make it seductively wavery to get some sort of like quasi-painterly effect with the, on the irregularity of the, of the drill holes. They're almost perfect, and yet we can sense that they're not. And I felt in just some, something super simple like that, you felt his, his dedication, his belief, his conviction, all those qualities of extremity to the, to the project, yeah. lift everything out of, of feeling possibly a little sentimental for me. But there's still, there's still, I find him a little hard to think about. I, I admire him and I'm moved by some of those pieces and, and also some of them are super funny, all these little touches the, mm. that one of the books, all the book choices in the, in the piece that we just saw were great, including the Anita Bryant family cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many others. The, I love the, yeah. the runway with the, the roped off so that you're being given the, the red carpet treatment, but it's being taken away simultaneously. All of that, you feel his wit and, and, the, and there's, you feel a kind of winning, lovely, earnest, beautiful yeah. temperament. Yeah. But how to situate him in terms of a larger art world, and this, this I, here I do come back to your question, I do feel it's a little tricky. I felt like he was pushing that purposefully, clearly in this show, as if he was anxious about it, as if to say, where is this work's kind of almost supernatural, artisanal madeness, yes. leaves it a little bit like a kind of isolated outcrop of effort that you could connect it to like Pito and Hartnett from the 19th century, and you could connect it to Gober, and you could connect it in many different ways, and yet it seems kind of singular. It is a, it is a, a craft is a good word to be using because it, it is, it's that dinky delicacy, um, and, and it's, it's, it's entirely appropriate to mention the physicality of the artist, because he's, um, I mean, I, I'm very aware of his physicality, he actually, he and his uh, husband live in the same building as me, oh. um, and so I see him regularly, um, and, and I've admired him for many years. Um, but, you know, when I first met him, I thought, this is the guy, and this was in the 90s that I met him, the guy who made those thimbles, each thimble is like <laughs> the size of a fingernail, yeah. and, and there's like a f three or four fields of them filling uh, shelves each of a vitrine. Um, that it reminds me of uh, the fact that Morton Feldman, the composer, uh, his music was incredibly delicate, all built around triads and played very, very almost pianissimo on the piano. And um, this very delicate, refined, uh, patient, calm music came from a great slob of a man. It's a huge, um, um, thick thumbs and very sort of overweight and awkward guy. And people often noted how incongruous it was to see him play the piano. But that awareness of one's own body and folding it into a, the otherness of one's craft, I think, is very uh, apposite with him. Um, but, um, Nick, um, I, I go on a knee and beg of you as a philosopher, particularly as a Plato expert, to, <laughs> to tell us something about Ledre that relates to the phenomenon of somebody um, offering us uh, facsimiles in a ah. different... Uh, should we think of these as facsimiles, as simulacras, as representations? Uh, bore us with some philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> nah, well, it, that's it, it. It, it's, it, it's so hard to answer that 
<laughs> to, to <laughs> yeah. meet that demand yes. without without failing to meet that demand somehow. Uh, uh, but I, I I actually wanted to talk about ready mades uh, pre <laughs> precisely because uh, with a ready made the idea of of a puzzle, for example, or a clue is really beside the point. Mm. You know, it's a snow shovel um, and looking on the snow shovel for, for some little, little clue, if it's, if it's a ready-made, misses the point of what the ready-made is. Whereas when you walk around and look at these uh, Ladre pieces, after a while it does seem as though each one of them has a clue or two, or you know, some, um, an object that doesn't fit with the others. Uh, you've got the workers' tools um, in the uh, One Step Beyond or, one, uh, or Watch Your Step. Watch Your Step. Watch Your Step. These tools just uh, scattered on the floor, and then among them is a sickle, mm. so it, it, which is the only, what, otherworldly uh, connection in, in that. The, the public library, and I agree with Alexi, a lot of, I mean, you could really have fun just browsing mm. the titles. A lot of them, by the way, seem to, uh, uh, seem to be books from when I was a kid or a teenager, and, and uh, I know that Ladre and I were born in the same year. Oh. Uh, so, so they took me back. But, but then one of the books is open, and it's, uh, uh, the only one that's open is an emblem of, of what they used to call a smuggler's Bible. You know, the kind of book that's got the pages cut out so that you can smuggle things over borders. Uh, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure Customs is on to that by now, so I don't <laughs> recommend it. But, but you could also take a, a, a flask of whiskey to your school uh, room in those, obviously. You, you, you cut out that shape and put some cigarettes or some booze in there to get them into your school. It, it's a... Mm. It's, it's a book with many purposes. Yes. You know, every time you look inside, it could be something different. Yes. Uh, but so it's, it's telling that that's the one open book, as if to uh, suggest that maybe all these books are for smuggling or are for passing out. Mm -hmm. but, but that's even getting ahead of ourselves, the very fact mm -hmm. that you've got what look like planted clues mm -hmm. in these, in mm -hmm. these pieces. Mm-hmm to my mind, is what separates them from, well, separates them from the ready-made and maybe also separates them from the platonic worry about uh, the mimetic. Right. <laughs> to get back to Yes. That. When I said bored with philosophy, what I meant to say is blind with science. <laughs> and so uh, that would have... But, but thank you very much. That's exactly the, the, the area that I wanted to get into. Those, the library is interesting to me, actually, because it's... Um, although uh, Martha has indicated... Uh, a degree of ref art, canonical referentiality that I guess I had kind of missed with references to specific other artists, although I, I did see it with the uh, Rauschenberg uh, the closet, but um, janitor's closet. But um, I, I, the library, it actually seems um, very personal, but at the same time, um, very interestingly coded. It, it seemed to me... Um, I couldn't help but see a, a whole load of puns to possibilities of um, a kind of gay life in the titles. The Greek way and Knights on the City and 
cookbook things, and, and, and um, just a little bit of cheeky double entendre going on uh, with those, both the volumes and the way they're packaged, and, and even some of the uh, kind of um, references on, on one of the boxes saying something like um, uh, top side up, and then, then the cucumbers. And so maybe I, with one clue, it began to, this may be another instance of TMI coming, coming across, um, but it seemed to me that there seemed, seemed to be like a, a fun coded um, cheekiness to, to this uh, selection. Um, which brings me on to this sort of feeling that uh, actually um, in previous um, shows of Le Dre that I've seen, um, it was often um, something either overtly autobiographical in a, in a show that looked at the uh, Seattle World's Fair um, or um, that had to do with the vulnerability of masculinity. Um, and this show, which is a product of, uh, this is a, the first show in many years, seems to be um, a whole range of possibilities going on. And it's, it's more like, not a retrospective, but it's, it's like, um, um, here is a broad selection of my, not just my product, but also my thinking of, of a certain period. And therefore, less of a show with a purpose. Does, do, do, any, any concurrence on that? Yeah. I mean, the other thing is this one is much more nostalgic. You know, I don't remember going in and saying, thinking like, oh, old books, old pants, old everything. And mm -hmm. so that was a little bit tricky in terms of where that was leading, you know. And so I did go and ask at the front desk, uh, is that the library from a specific library? No. Is are those, you know, kind of faux engravings from a specific collection? No. And so that's another slightly tricky thing for me, too, that it seemed like, in a sense, kind of nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, mm -hmm. you know. Perhaps, you know, the sort of, like, you know, queer 50s or something, or, you know, a different period in time when you couldn't be out or something, yes. and so much more coded. But not, I guess... I don't know. I mean, there are just a number of things that got kind of halfway there for me. And um... I, I read it a different way. I, thought, I, I agree about the nostalgic being, it seems so deliberate, and, and yet it's hard to feel entirely excited about that. It just seems like nostalgia. But it seemed to me it was a nostalgia for the pre-digital, that his working method is so hands-on, and the, all these tools are the tools of manual work and that it seemed like the whole thing was while it had hints of our history and the personal blah 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 it was a kind of hymn to non-digital palpable physical materials mm. and work mm. and and that maybe it's brave because that's a kind of unfashionable thing to be pushing um it seems a, a kind of a blunt but passionate subject matter I, I kind of kept wanting it to be a little bit more complicated than that, but maybe it's, maybe it's that. Maybe it's that very, very earnest and simple, and a, the kind of, I mean, that's the way he works. That's what he's devoted to doing. Yes. But it's also, if I can say one more thing, it's also very American, and so in a kind of like make America great again moment, I'm kind of like, you gotta, you gotta do a little bit more with this for me. You know, I can't just have Americana all over the place, I, I have to have it pushed a little bit more. That's just me personally. And so I was sort of waiting for that. The thing is, he is an artist with a very light touch in the sense it's very labored, but it's not, 
um, as we're going to see with other people, sort of like overdetermined. But right. that's you know a tricky moment here. So all right. Okay. Not sure where to go with the. Can I just say one more thing though, just totally <laughs> parenthetically? Please. Among the great things about Ladre is that he um, sponsored a lot of terrific writing, and the, I think maybe the best Peter Sheldahl piece ever, possibly other so many, but his 1996 Village Voice review of a Ladre show um, at uh, Jay Gorney is it's worth reading. You can dig it up, Google it easily. It's just like Sheldahl at its perfect best. Fantastic. How did you know about that? <laughs> did you look that up for this, or you knew it? No, no, no. It's, it's in the website. It's in the Freeman website. Oh, you can find it in the Freeman website. Oh, okay. I just like, was, yeah. How does one have a 1996 yeah, Sheldahl yeah. review in it, their frame? They, they have it. No, no, no credit <laughs> to me. Um, uh, Nick, any, any last thoughts on words? Yeah. Well, this is, this is just a thought, and, and um, inspired by your question about the, the scale, um, it's just one of those... Uh, questions that keeps kicking around in uh, mimetic art is the relevance of the scale. Mm. Um, you know, uh, the, among philosophers, for example, inspired by Arthur Danto, who are still talking about the Brillo boxes of Warhols, uh, there's still some discussion of the fact that the typical Warhol Brillo box is somewhat larger than a real-life Brillo box, mm. and uh, the question whether that's what makes it the art Brillo box, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, as, as if that slight difference in scale. Mm. It's like, oh, see, you make it like this big, and now it's art, and back to this, and it stops being art. Um, so so Ladre is, is hitting a nerve with, with the, the play with scale that's, um, well, the nerve the nerve that's hit by all of us when we think about mimesis. Yes, yes. But it, it, it isn't, I think, maybe simply scale. It's that when it's scaled down, um, there is a sense of, there's the, the sense of the artist's hand, the touch that goes, that is germane to the scale. Um, uh, w when you see something out of scale that is, uh, say, um, um, in, in a, say, a photograph, a photo most photographs we see are not right. in scale in their printed form to the objects they depict, but uh, such is the craft of the lens that uh, we, are, we see th past that or we are, in, in a way, blind to that. Whereas um, I think when something is crafted at a scale or in a material uh, radically different from its primary object, that it, um, that sensibility inevitably enters, doesn't it? Yeah, yes. Well, and, and, and then Ladre Le, kind of forces that in the, the one piece, the, not pick up sticks, what was it called? Oh, uh, Jack, uh, Jack, Jack Straws. Straws. Uh, mm. The different objects, all, I'm afraid, carved from human bone. I, I didn't, mm. and I, I didn't really want the backstory about that. Well, at least it's not elephant. <laughs> it's, better, it's not an elephant bone, so that's... that's yeah, so, that's, so it's okay. So it's, it's PC. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> phew. Yes. Uh, uh, but, and the objects, the objects are not the... I mean, the objects are cut to be the same size, even when they're clearly of different scale. So, yeah. so he's, he's forcing you to think about the sizes of the objects. Yes. And... Mm -hmm. and 
you know, the fact oh. that he is imposing his own size oh. requirements upon them. Yeah. But David, that comes back in a way to my point that scale is something that only has its true impact live when you're in the room. Right. It, it's ruined. It doesn't, doesn't take place with photography at all. So to me, the anti-digital, anti-photographic are, are back to this potential kind of main drift of, of his thinking. Fantastic. Yes. Now, the segue from Ledre to Black requires a degree of ingenuity, <laughs> but um, the factory might be the common uh, thread that takes us from uh, um, uh, the... Uh, the, the, the that's the other thing about Ledre. You talk about MAGA, but to, to me, in fact, Ledre is, um, is on the right side because he is... Um, everything there feels union-made. You know, it's, 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 it's uh, the workerist pride um, and, and, and the, the working class identity is, I think, as strong as the gay identity in, in, in Le Dre's artistic personality. Um, but, uh, yeah, so um, Hannah Black, I realized watching my own video how unkindly large proportion of my introduction to her um, is anecdotal and um, Dana Schutz-oriented. But um, I don't think we would probably really, I suspect we might not really know this artist uh, were it not for that um, intervention. Maybe that's, maybe uh, I'm, I'm ready and willing to be disproved on that or, or shouted down on that. Um, but um, uh, the, the um, uh, um, I, I had quite a bit of difficulty um, liking this show as much as I feel I should have, <laughs> could have done. Um, and I, so I'm, I'm ready, to be, um, uh, ready to be enlightened. Um, it seems to me that uh, she's, she's, she's onto some good subjects and um, has laid out some materials that have great potential. Um, uh, but um, um, it, it may be that beyond, uh, beyond the Dana Schutz, beyond Dana Gate, there is the... Um, the problem that I have that um, Alexi very generously alerted me to the fact that there was a, a, a discussion uh, taking place um, between the artist and uh, an interlocutor, and I, I jumped on my bicycle and sped down and joined him for some of that. I think we both looked at each other and realized that we might want to leave at the point where the artist said, um, somebody needs to do a Marxist critique of factories. And I think, Hmm. <laughs> I think that maybe has been done by someone, <laughs> someone called Marx. Um, but um, uh, let's, let me uh, apologize for having introduced the artist ungenerously and, and ask somebody who's, who feels more behind the work um, to... Uh, 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 Nick, can I start with you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, look, she's... She's looking at metaphors, and... Oh, yes. Um, Greg, can we, can we move now to the second PowerPoint? That'd be great. Good. On its way. Uh, but let, uh, please, carry on. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a topic we've thought about, well, for hundreds of years, about metaphors, being gripped by metaphors, breaking free of metaphors. And um, she approaches the topic uh, with her own, I, I think, with a fresh voice. Uh, 
and she's, she doesn't just talk about metaphors as such, um, but the cell and the factory, the factory and the slave ship. Mm. Um, and there are some fresh juxtapositions there um, uh, to, the, to the old thought, but again, a thought worth repeating, that we tend to project social and economic categories onto nature and then think that we're reading those categories back from the natural objects with some surprise, uh, as, as if to say that validates our social and economic realities. So you know, we've, we've heard that. I, I think she sets up the, the structure of the critique in a nice way instead of <coughs> simply trying to attack a metaphor, juxtaposing incompatible metaphors and incompatible images so that, so that the critique is, at, at times, I thought at its best, uh, suggested rather than, than imposed. Mm. Um, and, and then, of course, metaphor is, is the word metaphor uh, from metaphora is, uh, means, means transfer, transport. So uh, her return to the slave ship um, as, as the literal object that, that also represents the metaphorical imposition of social and economic realities, again, on what purports to be biology. You know, I thought that was, that was put together actually pretty elegantly. Right. Great. Martha? Nope. I think, I think <laughs> she's a bad artist. Ah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you um, really think? I think she sucks. Uh, I um, had never heard of her before the Whitney Biennial, but I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, two years ago, but, you know, I'm game for anything. So um, I saw her show at Bodega. I had actually signed up to write about it because we have our secret list where we say, I'm going to write about this, you write about this. And I took it off because I was like, I'm not going to criticize this show. Basically, it wasn't ready, you know, but because she made a loud noise, she's gotten a lot more opportunity to show. Um, and then um, I saw her show in Berlin um, in January at Eden Eden, which is an um, outpost of um, Bordelotsi. And what I said to a bunch of people, she's getting better, you know? And then um, this show, I was very curious to see it, and um, she borrowed, and I'm pretty sure she, who she borrowed it from, um, last summer in Berlin, um, Lynn Hirschman Leeson had a, a show at an offsite mm -hmm. of the, you know, Kunstwerk that had these multiple screens and so that you experience the work, you know, moving forward. So the second I walked in, I was like, oh, she got the Lynn Hirschman, you know, thing on the screens. Um, I would not move from the Marxist standpoint. What I would have said um, about the Charles Ladre is that what do you get out of making things little is, you know, this kind of puniness that leads to a sort of pathos. What do you get when you make things big? It's usually about bombast. Hers is all, bomb all bombast and not enough substance, you know? I mean, like the end of the world, the, the this, the that. It's, it's still not a, got enough glue there. Um, I also think she's a very smart writer. I, you know, I probably, I literally had to go to the front and be, how long is this thing? And they said 11 minutes. And I'm like, okay. 
Um, but, you know, and then I went through it, but I, f I find this kind of work very exasperating because, um, you know, it's not that I'm not smart enough for it, it's that it's not, it's a lot of hot, hot air. Um, her review of Ta-Nehisi Coates's book on um, his Obama interviews and in art and book forum was way better. You know, at this point in time, she's a far better writer than she is a visual artist, and um, you know, maybe it'll sort of catch up. But I, I really, you know, I mean. We all know better artists, Jana Comfra, Arthur Jaffa, people dealing with, you know, whether it is the Middle Passage or, um, you know, uh, biology, genetics, um, you know, racism, obviously, and the tie to the, some of those things. Um, I, um, that's what I have to say. Okay. Yeah, actually, during that um, rather painful dialogue, um, she did read from... Uh, uh, one of uh, from her upcoming collaboration with Juliana Huxtable, um, some of her prose, which I found riveting. I thought was very beautiful. She's a good writer. Yep, she's a good writer. Um, but um, Alexi, what did you make of this piece? What of, would of the work? be so nice to disagree. Um, I, I'm just very briefly going to say that I think Martha, Martha's take is my own. She, I didn't even see a glimmer of what she could be as a video artist. I, 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 don't, I thought the metaphors that Nick, you were seeing or talking about come from the press release. I don't think that they're legitimate, you know, truly Im embodied in this experience of the video. It looked generic and amateurish. And I, I don't, on the other hand, her writing, sorry? So, no, no, did somebody a, add something? They didn't. Um, they have a moment to add things later. Okay. But, uh, the yes. writing, I thought, I, again, there were all kinds of um, moments when writing took over those screens. Even, even the bit that you showed some of where there's four screens. One says there's never been a world, and there's a pause. It's the beginning of the world. It's the end of the world. And then the last one, after another pause, says, I'm in your apartment. I thought that was good. That was just a little freaky. I'm in your apartment. The, there's just that transition. And there's a bit in the, in the Coates essay, or maybe it was... Um, she wrote an identity politics piece in art form, also in form, talking about um, identity critics um, resting high on the plumped psychic pillow of being white and cis and male. I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> the plumped psychic pillow. I mean, she's, you know, pointing her finger at me. Yes. But, and, and others <laughs> like me, whatever. But it was, you felt tart, nimble, mm. um, you know, um, maybe a little self-righteous, but, but somebody maybe who's like an exciting right. firebrand. I actually, I went to the piece kind of excited to have right. her make good on that writing voice in another medium. I was, I was super ready to, to be frustrated and, and keyed up and um, maybe irritated, but, but to, re to find something to respond to. I, I didn't think there was. But I don't know. I didn't find it as univocal as you're, uh, as you're both describing it to be. There were just enough fragmentary... Uh, how, much video, how much video have you seen? I think oh, it, that's no. part of the problem. If you saw the John Acomfra show last summer at the New Museum, I mean, that is like a master of the form. And then you go and see this, and you're like, ooh, you know. So it's, that, it's part of that problem, you know. It, it's like... Contextual. We see if you've seen a ton of art, you just know this isn't quite, you know, 
It's like a student. But piece. then again, if you've seen too much work, you get a, you become a formalist, and uh, and and, no, and maybe yeah, that's and that's so what it's, it's that would, good to be but refreshed by. But that's what I was hoping for. And again, it's like okay, maybe you know, maybe she's kind of jumping into. I mean, she's I, my understanding is she studied art writing in yes. at Goldsmiths. Yes. And so she, in a way, she's using the opportunity that her fame has given her, and fine, let that happen. And and I, but I just. I wanted to be able to say, okay, this is maybe a raw early version of something that's going to be really cool. You never know. I've been wrong a million times. That could still be true, but I can't see it yet. I've always been opposed to prescriptive criticism. Um, I, never, I love Roberta, but I don't like it when she ends saying a review saying, I suggest you go and do more of this and less of that. But um, I kind of think with, um, with Black, considering how, what great results she's getting collaborating with Huxtable in her writing, that... Um, Go and work with someone who's more of a visual video artist and bring your um, research and ideas and information. I mean, I think maybe she's more of a director than a, an executor. When I, I, the reason I preface this, it's not as if I haven't given her a chance. I saw the show at Bodega. I did see the show in Berlin. I have completely, you know, this yes. is the third show I've seen of hers. This is not the first show either. But is it the last? So, no, I mean, no. I'll continue right. to see it. I yeah. see... I don't want to say I see everything. I don't see sure, everything, but, but, but I see quite a bit. And I don't, you know, I wouldn't say that, you know, seeing too much makes me jaded. It right. actually gives me the full range of information. And I have the same thing that Alexi has. I remember something that she said in that book forum uh, article. You know, she said that when Obama got elected, it was like a rip in the fabric of reality. And then, of course, he just went on to being, you know, the you know, the leader of the free world and, you know, sending out drones with bombs and whatever. But it was just like, if she had that poeticism, you know, if she, like you said, if she'd put that more of that in this work instead of the kind of like, you know, if we've been looking art, at art for a long time, you walk in a room and you see a, a screen that says, you know, like the end of the world or something, you're like, yeah... Not so, I mean, chosen dreary typography, even or a, a lack of sound, or, or it, it just there was a, there was a she had that whole room at her disposal and obviously a budget. It seemed a very um, lackluster. Um, um, uh, seemed like a, a good materials gathered, great resources at her disposal. Why didn't we get served a feast? Because Why didn't we making get a pump art below? is hard. Yes. <laughs> it's just that simple. Well, well also, the cell is... It's, it's a, I mean, in fairness, I mean, the, the, the cell is kind of hard to talk about, and, she's, and it's off the beaten path. Yes. Um, I mean, I don't think there's been a ton of video art about cells. About, there's been but, a lot of art. I mean, the whole field of bio art you know, it's sort of wading into that without a clear recognition that there are people, you know, like Annika Yee or whatever, who are, you know, not just looking at a cell, but, you know, doing a lot more with it. So there, there's... And having, like, know. a little sampled voiceover with a scientist and then a sampled voiceover with a historian and some dust swirling and, uh, you know, some historical documents, it just, it feels Googleable. Mm. Readily, quickly. Sorry. Googleable. You know, just a bunch of the materials still put together in. Yeah, no it time. feels like a scrapbook, maybe. Um, yeah. In a way, that's a standard way to begin making video yes. work, but. Mm. She's, as I say, she's assembled the ingredients, but 
has not cooked up a I feast. I mean, this, this is a little bit unfair, but I found myself thinking of a video piece I saw, I don't know, a year ago, where that begins with a medium format, a medium distance shot of a kitchen. And at first you think it's a black and white still, but then you realize it's, it's just the faintest color, but beautiful. And then it's also not a still. You see underneath a teapot in the, in the semi-foreground, tiny little blue flames. And then you realize the teapot is vibrating. And it's, it's like 10 seconds in, you think, oh my God, so much control and precision, so much engagement. It's back to Charles Ledre and seeing somebody who's just cares about everything in it, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Coco Fusco. Aha, uh -huh. right, right. Great, audience, um, we'd love to hear your uh, feelings and thoughts on Ledre and Black um, and the discussion so far. Um, so let's see, let's see how our audience is feeling tonight. Let's, uh, there's some mics going around. Yes, there's one on each side. Um, and uh, just pitch in. We don't have to divide it. Yes, thank you, Yvonne. Um, uh, Gwen. Gwen. Uh, you're bang in the middle, so they were torn as to which... There was a union demarcation, but you got the, the mic. Yes. No, I just wanted to talk about scale is it, Yes, is, is the mic on, though? Yes. Talk into it. Thank you. Uh, is uh, about scale and Charles Ledre, and uh, I guess he was aware of Duchamp's uh, Boite en Valise, which mm. of course was a small replicas of Duchamp made of all his work. And uh, because it was in a suitcase, it was really an archive. It was an archive of all the work he'd ever made, made small. And smallness in this case was not cute. It was really, um, well, thinking about all the work he'd done that in a way he could carry around with him. But of course, they were made into additions, and, but had all the works in it. Um, and he worked on the uh, Boite en Valise for about eight years. So um, I think that Charles Ledre also has a feeling of archive in his work. And, um, but scale, I think, is an interesting point. And um, I mean, we can jump to other ideas of scale in that um, it made me think of uh, an artist, um, Lydia Clark, who was Brazilian a fantastic artist, actually, mm. um, who made some very tiny works called bichos, which you could actually be interactive with. You could move them around because they were with hinges, and you, she went more and more in her work into interactive work, actually. Could you repeat the name of the second artist? Uh, Ligia Clark. Clark. Ligia Clark. Oh, Ligia Clark, yes, yes. yes. Of course, the Brazilian um, but neo I saw that, um, I mean, she passed away a long time ago, but two years ago or three years ago, they made a huge replica of some of her bichos, I mean, to the ceiling, which of course was not her intention at all. So they took the scale of a very small work and made it enormous. Yeah. So we're going in these different aspects of scale anyway. Pulled back and forth. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Gwen Thomas. Um, you know, I've never done this in all the years with the review panel, but it's occurred to me often, we, we have such marvelous people like this uh, like, like Gwen, an artist, and um, you don't, no compulsion to do so, but I, I would be grateful, and I think future generations would as well, listening to the podcast, if, if you are sharing a comment, if you just give us your name, that would be great. Thank you. Um, I hope I'd be curious good. to know if anybody loved the Hannah Black show. I mean, we were... Well, well, most well, we have one uh, one partisan, mm -hmm. but if there were others, I'd, I'd be psyched yes, to hear. Well, we would. I would. Of course, we want to hear that. And in fact, I don't think they would be shy to. I don't think anyone would be shy to pipe in. But thank you. 
Uh, my name is Lawrence Quigley. Um, just want to circle back to the ready-made of LePage. And the fact is I just got done cleaning out a third floor apartment and having the garbage, the library um, of discarded things that are moving no further, uh, talking about no, no one's receiving these and they're just being thrown out. Just want to contribute that sort of narrative to the work. And with, uh, it just circled back to the whole idea of you could stroll down the street and see someone's life deposited on the sidewalk and it has its own, say, built-in narrative because it's all their stuff and what describes them as a person. I just wanted to bring that up. Thank you. Yeah, the, I was just going to say, yes, the idea of, uh, to pick up on what Alexi said about the extreme care that's, that, that Ledre is putting into these objects, and in many cases you've got these objects that are there as, as what's being discarded. Um, I'm thinking of the hotel, is it Trainor, Tremor? Uh, the, the hangar with the, the clothes and... Yes, uh, the life vest, and, yes. Um, it's, I'm thinking of the, the pants with the belt and suspenders. Yeah. And, and then the little wedding ring uh, you can just make out on, on the hangar. So, so the, the, the sharp um, opposition between uh, investing so much care into, this, into the production of these objects in order to depict something that's being thrown away or left, left behind. Yeah. Fantastic. Yes, at the front. If you wait for the mic, it's just there. Right there. It's a trick. Yeah. I, I more have a question. I wonder if you're not dismayed by the fact that a visual metaphor is not just a literary, it's just not a sentence put on a billboard. They're entirely different languages. And I'm, I don't, I'm worried that no one has brought that up, or you're not perplexed by that or dismayed by the dumbing down of the concept of a visual metaphor. I don't, I don't think it's dumbing down. I think she's, we said it in a way. She's a writer. Exactly. But it, it's not just an easy slur to go from being a writer to taking over visual territory in that way. I mean, and, the history of art has yeah. created an extraordinarily large language, a visual metaphor, and it suddenly just seems like a, a back door to, to just putting up billboards. Well, I, you, you're in, I think you're in agreement with three out of the four panelists. So um, uh, did you not sense that, especially Martha and, and Alexi were, were just saying, uh, she's gathered visual, she's gathered ideas, but not done the work of turning them into visual metaphor, moving visual we didn't, metaphor. We didn't say it maybe explicitly in the way that you wanted, but I, th I, I think the point was implicit. And also, I, in some interviews, she herself is anxious about it. It's not that she's... I didn't see the results of that in, in the work, but she talks about being unsure about whether she can be an artist. But you think the form is capable of delivering? The form, Absolutely. of course. Sure, yeah. Countless, yeah. countless... Uh, People have taken ideas for a walk in visual form in way in, you know, to forms of things unknown. And, and are you worried that the form is not? Visual, art has created visual metaphors, and, it, and so has literature. To me, to have one misplaced, have literature simply, or slogans, in effect, 
mm-hmm. mis- uh, take the place of visual metaphor mm-hmm. is to misunderstand both. I think I was, I was not even sure what you were talking about when you said metaphor. I don't think there's any metaphor involved. And what we tend to, we, in, the, you know, in art writing, would just call it text because that's a very wide range. It could be Ed Ruscha, it could be Barbara Kruger. Okay, there's text yeah. that's working great. If you want to put it within video, because first of all, you're dealing with time. You know, how long am I going to stand here? Um, mm. You're dealing with space. You know, it's dark. It, there's, it, you know, what's the rhythm of the piece? Um, it's somebody who does this with very, uh, like, very, you know, economy and does it well is Tony Coax. You know, it's just text, just a bright color and music. You know, and I was describing to somebody recently how with Tony Coax, you know, sometimes you'll be like, I'm just going to stay here and listen to that song a little bit more. So he can hold you in place to read about torture, to read about capitalism, all that stuff, by effectively text, music, you know, whatever. Mm. It's the same in a video work as it is if you were a painter, you know, oh, great, you're just working with painting. No, you've got color, you've got scale, you've got a whole system and a whole (laughs) bunch of ingredients ingredients and she's got you know those are the things those she's decided to make a video in other places she's made sculpture and you know whatever so she's kind of as i would call it circling the airport in in terms well, of we looking say that for she's a made medium. a video but she's really made a slideshow it's really a powerpoint and, and sculpture uh, you know or installation look uh, the, the 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 structure is there for her to have done xyz yeah the, mater- the intellectual materials are there for her to have gone very, very deep. And what I think three of us are saying is that she did not go very deep. She did not rise to the occasion. Um, you know, this is, that was an, an amazing opportunity to do something that she didn't begin to, to broach. It's hard. Making art's hard. <laughs> you know, let's talk to the... Practicing artist on the, you right. know. Right. It's hard, right? <laughs> Apparently. That's what I, in the same way I like to go out and complain around the world, be like, writing is hard. Mm. No, it's hard, you know? But the thing is that, you know, the, the flip side of actually getting the opportunity when maybe you're not mm. 100% ready is... Yeah. I, I, it seems extraordinary um, that somebody, clearly of her intellect, and, and we're dealing with a prodigious intellect, um, and ambition, um, and command of resources, um, celebrity being one of them. Um, to me, it seems extraordinary to make work that's so um, sophomorically... Um, Haven't you seen this a million times? You'll talk to somebody, and they're like, wow, that person's really smart. And then they'll, you'll see their work, and you'll be like, ooh, not so smart. It's yeah. just, it's two different things, you know? Or you might talk to somebody and think they're an idiot, and then you see their work, and you're like, yeah. oh, my God. So it's just the two things do not go together. No, but, it's, but somebody that smart should be able to see their work and know that it's not smart work. But that's being, that's in the same mm. as they say about criticism. If mm. you're the fish, you don't always know about the water, you know? Right. So let alone the hook. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, I think we're ready for part two. So let's, let's watch our second video. Now we're going to look at the paintings of David Humphrey and Aaron <coughs> Gilbert. In 1984, the year of his first solo exhibition, 
David Humphrey was included in a group show that argued for a new surrealism in contemporary painting. His art has always been happy to mix the coarse and the fantastical in equal measure. His penchant for zany colours and perverse, sometimes disturbing textures can bring to mind the aesthetics of Mad Magazine. In 1996, he ventured to define beauty, arguing, quote, that beauty is psychedelic, a derangement of recognition, a flash of insight or pulse of laughter out of a tangle of sensation. This is his fourth exhibition with Fredericks and Freiser and includes sculpture and painting and hybrids of the two and typically collides elements of appropriation, observation and abstraction. Elements of surrealism and La Pittura Metaphysica dear to David Humphrey surface in the personal narrative paintings of an artist a quarter century his junior, Aaron Gilbert. His first New York solo show is titled Psychic Novellas. The media release informs us that Gilbert is the son of political radicals who grew up in a background of poverty and domestic violence and became a father himself very young before attending college. His aesthetic draws on a rich array of historical precedents, including Fayum funerary portraits, Neuer Zaschlichkeit painters like Otto Dix and Christian Schad, as well as Frida Kahlo, Kerry James Marshall and George Tucker. The author of the media release convincingly compares the way mundanity is charged with magic realism in his work to a Luis Borges story where elements of the everyday shift into the metaphysical. But you knew it ended there, right? I knew it ended there. Okay. Metaphysical. Dun, dun. Another cue for our philosopher, but, um, <laughs> but I think not. I think, Alexi, I'd like to get your take on David Humphrey. This show in, in particular, and Humphrey in general. Well... A fellow painter-writer. Yes, he's, he's not only another person who wears those two hats, as I have, but also a friend. And we've um, sp uh, spent a lot of time talking about art together. Um, David is um, a super generous high energy presence in the art world for I think probably most of, many of the people in the audience know him, maybe most, um, and have benefited from his um, exuberant, generous, huge energy. Um, but beginning that way sounds like I'm gonna go negative on the work. I really enjoyed the show. I feel like David's, um, the premise of David's work is super 80s, super to me comes out of a kind of um, hunger for a, a maximalist, pluralist, um, everything's available, let's use it in a savvy, um, fresh way. And I think he's a terrific exemplar of that viewpoint in the art world. I think some of the work, when it doesn't succeed as strongly to me, it's because 
um, he makes a kind of a fetish of discontinuity and the, and the work, um, he's, sometimes to me it doesn't pull together into a sense of unity. And I, and I because I think he's in love with discontinuity, maybe a little, in, it can be, it can verge towards glib because of his devotion to this ideal. And when it works, and I think it does, for, for particularly in the horse facade painting, in, in all of the works on vinyl, strangely, I think also a lot, oftentimes it works with his, when animals take over the work. I think there's something about, he's such a cerebral, thinky artist, and I think in some ways animals as emblems of intuition mm. release him from that and make for a kind of more intuitively satisfying painting where the materials take over more and he's less tempted by cleverness. Yeah, Clever, cleverness is, a, is, a, is an interesting thing there because um, as I say, he's, as I feel, he's, he's, he's capable of, he, he loves the low, he loves vulgarity, he loves going to the, um, the, the, not the gutter, but the Walmarts of, uh, of our civilization to find the, the most garish, the most brazen, um, poor taste to make high art out of. And that is a very 80s thing after obviously that long drought of minimal conceptual pedagogy that, that he must have been exposed to. Um, and no wonder that generation coming in the early 80s were just um, chapping at the bit for uh, excess, overload, zany vulgarity. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting that um, uh, a particular kind of intellectual gets drawn to that. Um, I always feel a bit stupid for wanting something more elegant than um, than I u usually get, but I just do love the exuberance and energy of of what he's doing, and I just I just feel I also feel very um, un-American. That, that there's, a, there's a very American huh. there's a very there's a real Americana going on in this um, exuberant embrace of the popular. Well, and of of the baffled dog. Uh, yes, I mean. I, I, <laughs> The poodle, yes. Yeah, you know, when they, when they tilt their head to the side like that, you know, like, like, you know I don't really speak English. And, uh, you know, that, that but that's, that's also to understand. That's also the look of people looking at paintings, right? They, they tilt them. <laughs> <it. laughs> yes. <laughs> that to me seemed so David, that painting in doing both those things. Yeah, great sense of humor. Nick, what do you, what, where, do you, where do you fit with his humor and with his sensibility? Well, um, I, I guess where I, what, I, what I really warmed to in the more composite paintings, the ones that had you know, some sketches and some rendered moments and some, some uh, gestural abstract moments, was that uh, I thought that it was a... It was a particularly good way of evoking the, the dream experience, you know, the, the moments. Mm. Focus, a lot of people like to represent dreams, but it was just, uh, I thought, an effective uh, dreamscape and, and to find the sleeping figures here and there. Um, uh, added, the, added the sort of wit of inviting you to identify with the figures who are asleep in the painting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, do, do you feel that, um, I, I think it's kind of interesting that surrealism should come up um, as, um, you know, a past movement, but um, that this, this, 
there's the there's the the marvelous and the commonplace, but there's also that that sense of um, something released in some something coded in dream of of great significance. Do, do you do you feel that? Um, um, why, why, why should an artist of his uh, generation and intellect be so drawn to surrealism? Is it the, 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 the vulgarity of the style? Is it the, is it the revolutionary potentials remaining in, in that way of approaching life? Um, please don't ignore that question, Martha. I don't know. Surrealism, like, you know... It's got staying power, you know? I mean, I don't know, surrealism, yes, maybe, but when you say surrealism also, it has very, you know, that had very specific things, like we're interested in, for one thing, you know, um, Freud or something like that, you know? And his is lot, a lot less about sort of, you know, sexual innuendo and things like that than, um, you know, as you've already sort of, well, um, one thing that Alexi said in terms of these kind of like visual jokes, you know, the poodle as the viewer or the painting staring back at you. Um, do you want me just to give you my thoughts on the show? Please, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, I think it should have been edited. I thought it was, there was too much work. Um, and so you have these really, he's a kind of like, um, you know, like very punchy, like kind of hits painter, like you really remember a painting. But with this many paintings, it kind of got diluted for me. The poodle is just great. I really love the one, the legislator, which you guys just saw that had the face in this kind of field of paint. Um, that I kind of want to linger on that, you know, instead of seeing that and then, you know, 14 more paintings. That's just it didn't really do it, and so there was this kind of drop-off, and then I did ask in the back room about that grid of paintings. Is he really the kind of person where you look at a grid of paintings? I would say historically not, you know? So there, there's a little bit of a shuffling kind of issue here. The other thing that nobody um, mentioned, unless you were calling the sculptures the vinyl works. No, but no, no, I didn't I, talk I don't think he's as strong a sculptor either. And so, I, you know, I'm sort of like looking at a couple of amazing paintings and then you're like, what's going on over there? You know, with that. It's that the classic dictum that sculpture is something you chip up over when you step back to have a look at a painting. Well, but it's also become the thing that I'm painting, but now I want to make sculpture. There's a lot of people making sculpture who, you know, were historically in some other area, does it mean they shouldn't make sculpture? No, but it takes as long to be a good sculptor as it takes, you know, often. Sculptures are very much painted sculpture. They are yeah, uh, eccentric supports for know, painting in a way, and they introduce texture, don't they? You know, it's kind of like a... He's been making them also for decades. Yes. I guess I just haven't seen very much of it, and I was kind of like, oh, there's a I, sculpture I, I have to I thought actually the sculptures had here. some real life in them, actually. Um, his, his painting has this combination of uh, wacky composition with nerdy touch. And it seems as in the sculpture, <laughs> actually, uh, the sculpture, maybe precisely because it's not his primary medium, um, he's really got to get his hands dirty and literally grapple with form. And that's actually why, although they're not as finessed, obviously, um, I found the sculptures more lively in many ways. Uh, More lively than the paintings, or yes. than his earlier. The paintings are lively as images, but they're not especially lively as painting. And in, in addition <laughs> to the ones you mentioned, Martha, I would add the 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 one friends, 
that, that I thought was a really memorable painting. <coughs> uh, You're good at remembering these titles. I'm going to have to look this the up. Blue and yellow, where yes. weirdly it was like human yep. figures, but also suggested the shape of thumbs down. Maybe I just had, you know, social media on my mind and uh. your friends and, you know, and, and yes. dislike. Uh -huh. But uh, it was, I don't know, I, I kept coming back to that one. But it was one of the big ones in the front. Yes. Well, he's like Alexi in the sense I think of your work as a kind of visual puzzle, you know, and so that it's kind of like, and this is the surrealist part, is where you're sort of fooling around with vision so that, you know, one way you'd sort of explain surrealist painting is that, you know, you know how in a dream there can be ice over here and a fire right there so that you have these juxtapositions. Mm -hmm. And then the, the kind of beauty of painting is that it exists as a similar dream space where you can have these impossibilities <coughs> next to each other. And um, I don't know, maybe you have some language from talking about your own work with this in terms of you and he have that sort of similarity, I think, in a sense. Plus, and this is the other part with surrealism, is that you can feel the sort of like crush of mass media in his work and then the awareness and then turning over and being like, now I'm gonna make a painting, you know? And so that it's, there's a sort of sense of, I don't know, paradox, maybe irony, wryness. I don't know. All those things for sure. I think of him coming more out of kind of Polka and Gibbenberger and that stream, not surrealism so much. Although everything is there. They're super inclusive, porous mm. kinds of picture making. Oftentimes I feel like they're, they're really two main streams in a picture and you're seeing kind of an, like an anecdotal stream and then an intervention on top of it that complicates and endangers it. And sometimes the, the anecdote gets entirely lost, but often in this show, mm. more than in others, the anecdote survives. You know, there's a little group of men on a cell phone, or there's the yeah. concrete truck, or whatever. It's just, it's, it's totally, you know, like the incipient image didn't really end up getting threatened. It just gets ornamented by those beautiful, I love those birds at the top. Right. They seem to me places where he painted. I, I like also when he paints fastest. Hmm. I feel like sometimes he tends to go back and over elaborate, and sometimes the kind of impulsive David Humphrey is the freest and Bold most. gesture. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I certainly think that 80s exuberant, uh, I think he's a, first and foremost a juxtapositional artist, and that's where yeah. the, uh, the, the German uh, connection is uh, very pertinent with, uh, but also the, the, uh, the American neo-expressionists, in particular David Sally, I think is very much his painting uncle. Um, that uh, colliding of, of references and worlds, and that's where I would take issue with Martha and saying that actually, to me, it makes total sense for him to overload and pack an exhibition because we then get the contrasts of texture and speed and composition and balance and elegance and bulk versus vulgarity from one image to the other. They, they kind of need that overload as a kind of adrenaline rush to take us through the exhibition. But I was glad you said that, because I, I thought of it immediately as being like, David's a beautiful overtalker, mm. so the show is like David. Mm. But like a Matthew Marks hang of Humphrey might be kind of great. Big empty wall, one painting, just stay with it. Well, it would force us to then really look at the painting as painting rather than as image, and we might be disappointed. Yeah. 
or not. I'm, I'm just not a person who likes things overhung, but for instance, this painting that I understand, as I asked, is probably his wife, you know, the burning. Yeah, that's, like, a, oh, that's a departure. That's a real out on its limb. Not so I was going to get around to that. You know, so yeah. when I say editing, too, I'm just like, you know, you, I could edit it. You know, like I could well, say, why don't you... T- <laughs> why don't you take that to the back <laughs> office? Yeah, but, but actually, let's talk about that painting, because that painting did stick in my gullet. I, um, I know Jennifer, it's Jennifer Coates, his yep. wife. Um, and maybe it's because it's the missus, you have to behave properly and, and really, uh, <laughs> really do a good, a quote-unquote good painting of a solitary, uniform figure doing one thing. And it does not look like a David Humphreys. No. Uh, David Humphrey. What, what is... Um, could, you, could you talk us through that painting, Alexi? I take, I take it more as a social gesture that... Another, she's his wife, she's another painter, she's connected to a whole circle of musicians and painters. And I, I agree that that's not... And she's burning a letter. Yeah, I feel like there's a kind of comic, in-jokey hmm. spirit to that painting that I don't think it's meant to be taken in the same way as the other All works. Right. Is she saying, stop writing? <laughs> I, what, what is this I couldn't read all of the burning. text in the. It was, it was hard to make out. You know, you you could almost find words on that on that page. Mm. Yeah, I think she's like she's saying like, dear David, don't put this painting in. For real, right. Martha <laughs> says. Martha <laughs> says. <laughs> well, and the other thing about this '80s thing. Coming yes. out of the 80s is the message in the 80s that you know, you're not supposed to be painting in the first place. Mm. And so there's a kind of feeling in the paintings, for me at least, always with him, like, I'm going to do it anyway. You know? mm. And so that's part of the kind of joy, I think, in his work, is a sort of perversity, a kind of like against the grain of, you know, that there is all this color and, you know, sort of acid... Um, you know, coloring and whatnot, that painting is really just not of that um, ilk for me. Yeah, right. Do we have, do any of us have a favorite painting in the show? The poodle. It would be Friends, the... Mm -hmm. Which which one is Friends? I don't remember the the title. It's the blue... Very graphic. um, um, And yellow. Oh, yeah. Oh, I like that one, too. The big blue bodies kind of arrayed across, Mm -hmm. horizontally across the image. I like... The, the dream, maybe it's one of the dream ones you were mentioning, but there's kind of sleeping heads at the top and this giant oh, flower structure. It's not a flower, but a kind of big Franz Klein flower thing that just, I felt like it was one image. It, it, it's the, the connected, the two parts connected. Um, I don't remember what that one was called. Yes. But also I mentioned the horse. I think that horse one in the back is to me the showstopper of the whole show. Yes. Um, the improbable appearance of that horse felt to me like an unpremeditated intrusion that weirdly made sense, and I felt like the, the material of the paint um, felt glutinous and richer than, it some, than in some of the others. I'm just going to pick any sculpture just to annoy Martha. Um, <laughs> Martha, what's your favorite? Uh, the poodle. The poodle. I, cause, partly because it's got this like kind of palette on the end of its nose. Mm. Yeah. And so that in itself is just, you know, it's just, it's, it's got all the ingredients, you know. I don't, I don't even have to, Great. you know, this isn't for publication, so I don't have to articulate it. <laughs> it Excellent. just works. And there you are, uh, just words. And those are four. I know, it works. <laughs> four it, works. Positive, it just works. just works. Four positive words to round up our consideration of David Humphrey. So our last show of the evening, if we could go on to the, the fourth loop, please, um, Greg. 
Um, it's an unusual show because it, it, in two respects, uh, I neglected to mention in the movie, it's at Lyles and King um, Gallery on the Lower East Side. Um, this is, uh, well, maybe it's not unusual, but it's a debut New York exhibition, uh, but it's also not entirely of new work, but it gives us um, a body of work over um, half a dozen years. Um, and uh, it's of a, a new talent, um, and, and I think a very, I found them, many of them to be rather moving, intriguing paintings. Um, um, Martha, could you start us off on, on Aaron Gilbert? Loved it, thought it was fantastic. Just thrilled to see it. Right. Thumbs up. Two thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had not heard of him before, um, and I kind of saw it, I don't know, probably on social media, and I was already kind of like, what's this? You know, you obviously used the image, uh, one of his works, to advertise this panel. Um, so it's very striking, and... Um, you know, going in to see, so I already had seen, you know, an image, and then in the same way, all these other things we describe, you can go in and be disappointed. Mm -hmm. I was not disappointed. Um, and I think some of the things that stick in mind are, for instance, if you look at the eyes, you know, all these figures, if you haven't seen this show, go see it, and you see the eyes are kind of crazy, but the effect that he does is this kind of... Um, you know, um, I just these different colors and, and whatever. He really has a real command, um, you know, of, of, of the medium. Um, and then in the same way, I'm not, I don't use this word very much, but there's a pathos to it, which is, you know, pretty obvious. I mean, there's a surrealism and a kind of horror show element when you see the hands and you, you can kind of see a skeleton kind of coming out of the hands. I mean, he's very good at effects, mm. um, it, which is why I'm saying, uh, in a sense, he's got a real command. But um, apparent, I think he went to Yale or something. I mean, he was, you know, already, you know, sort of tapped early as a good painter. Um, and then apparently he was married to Deanna Lawson, which is some of these children that he's with. And then she's the little photo in the upper left or upper right hand corner yes. in that one painting, um, and she, of course, is a very well known artist um, at this point, photographer and a really talented artist. And so that's sort of like an interesting thing right there. But then apparently um, he um, was the victim of like a really awful attack, like a kind of beating, um, and had some kind of head injury. And you see that accounts the, for that mark that there we see on the There's this big scar, you know? And so that, this is a, you know, we've talked about other things like scale or text or whatever. You know, autobiography is very tricky territory, you know, because I, do we want to, you know, TMI, do we need to know too much? But I think he's holding all this together um, with a great deal of beauty and tension and elegance and, you know, one of the most important things, weirdness. You're kind of just looking at these paintings like, what is going on? So they have a kind of cinematic quality. Um, they have a sort of literary quality, which was, of course, Greenberg's uh, uh, argument against surrealism. We don't have yeah. that so much anymore. But there's a very, you know, a very um, poetic, literary, sometimes horror show 
Um, sometimes the horse show of the current moment when you, you know, one of the cars says something like border patrol and you're just like, oh, this is not going to go well, you know. Mm. So there's this undercurrent um, of, um, um, you know, what, yeah, what's going on in the world. And you feel mm. that sort of, you know, if you walk in, you're like, wow, these paintings feel very electric. Mm. His choice of what to paint. Uh, gives you this kind of continued sense that what you might have been feeling outside uh, thinking about the news or hearing some horrible thing going on in the world, and then you go in and you see it handled very well um, in a painting and sort of like crystallized. That's just, that's just a good artist, you know? So that's my take. Yeah, the, the, the ability to um, evoke historic precedents from metaphysical painting, Mexican muralists, uh, peasant traditions, uh, surrealism, um, um, and bring it into something that feels, that is and feels very contemporary, the the city bank image, the the border uh, interrogation, um, um, uh, and and, and that, that, it doesn't feel in any. It's it's interesting to be that quotational without feeling um, referential. It feels like um, he's sorry. He, what do you mean by without feeling referential? Uh, uh, quotational is the bad word to strike. Let me rephrase that. To to be that learned as to um, art historical precedents and possibilities without becoming a quotational or referential. As they say artist. on Project Runway, make it your own. Yes. He makes right. it his own. He, he is exactly. he's himself. Yes. Even though you can see he's, the glimmers these are, these are not of, pastiches, you know. but they are um, employing uh, in a learn in a in a pictorially learned way um, devices suggested historically. Uh, with, but in a way that does send us back to to relook at uh, to, to have another look at the things that he's drawing upon, which is I think the highest praise for um, a living tradition. Um, um, the, the, the very kind of Frida Kahlo-esque, and now we, we get that personal story, it makes the more sense, um, um, folding your own narrative of, of, of suffering into a particular kind of almost votive image. Um, um, does it feel theatrical, authentic? The, the flames coming out of the breast, um, the, the photograph of the woman. Um, this, it, it, it's, um, it's, you know, a, a dumb artist could make it very puerile very quickly, but it doesn't feel that way to me. What do you think is going on there with the, the use of, of magic realism? I mean, can one be a magic realist? Is, is, can anyone be a magic realist, or do you have to have a certain ethnicity or belong to a certain moment in history to be allowed to apply for that privilege? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because, obviously, as in some of the images you cite, uh, there's no other word but magic realism, mm. uh, how to get your woman back. Um, but then there are certain others uh, that are really embedded in... in details of, of contemporary life. I mean, Navient, um, you know, when they're, um, when they're preparing dinner with oh, the, yes, those the, frozen the chickens. chicken yeah. drumsticks and, and wings, and he's got this, uh, this bill from his student loan uh, 
Mm. And then there's also a Con Ed bill on the fridge. Mm. And if you look really closely, you see that there was a balance and nothing had been paid in the last pay period. And so it's the same balance. So they've got, (laughs) not to get obsessed with that. (laughs) Right, right. So so, uh, (coughs) in in those cases, it's it's not that, it's not just that it's um, possible to tell a story. Uh, a novella about, uh, mm-hmm. about an image that you're looking at, but it's sort of impossible to describe it without telling a story. You know, you'd have to be, you'd have to be numbed to the human form or to mm. contemporary life to think that you could describe some of these paintings mm. without constructing um, a pretty particular narrative. Mm. And, and then of the... the Art historical references you cited at the at the beginning. You mentioned the the Fayum yes. um, burial uh, uh, memorial portraits. And, well, there one of the one of the cliches that people always say about those paintings is you know we're struck by how modern they look. You yes. know we see them so many years later, and you know they even look like people we could know and. Um, I took I took him to be using that that prototype as uh, as an invitation to imagine these paintings being looked at in a distant future. Um, so uh, right. to to wonder what if anything in these in these narratives would make sense. Yes, um, you know it's, it's clearly everything is supposed to make sense, but you know you you get enough temporal distance from them and, and that's lost. It, it's fascinating how actually the, the four exhibitions we've discussed this evening do end up all um, revolving around um, authentic personal narrative, uh, the, the problem of the visual in relation to the um, conceptual or, or literary. Um, that that it, in, each, in each there's way, in each way, the, each of the four shows has actually ended up revolving around that. And I, I can't help feeling that, in, in a way, uh, these are the most overtly narrative, the, the exhibition's even called, as, as, as Nick reminds us, novellas, um, that uh, it's the most overtly autobiographical. Um, and yet, uh, the visual means are really beautifully folded into that. And, and we don't, we're not left with a sense of, I'm not left with a sense of um, painted narratives, but rather of narrative paintings. Alexei, would you go with that? Um, not painted narratives, but narrative paintings? Yes. Well, don't worry about that. I, yeah, well, well, sorry. <laughs> I, have, I, I have a cold. I'm, I'm, my brain is dead. I, I, that's, I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I, and I mostly I love this show too. I, I have known Aaron's work for a while. I was sorry that he had this period where, for the reasons Sarah described, he um, Martha. Oh God, sorry, Martha. <laughs> um, oh, this evening is becoming I don't know. Um, can lie down. Yeah, can I lie down? Yeah, yeah. Lie on the piano. That that would be very. <laughs> anyway, Aaron I was sorry he was out of the picture. I'm so glad he's back. I think he's a tremendous talent. I think you don't see that kind of. Um, incredibly convincing stylization and personalism and, and his ability, just as you said, to connect 
um, 40s painting and 70s painting. He's kind of Gregory Gillespie on one hand and Tooker on another, and he's thinking about Zini's painting and Fayum. All those things are real. They're really, they're really in his head. You feel it. And yet he's most of all concerned by in individual circumstances. To me, one of the kick-ass paintings of the show, one of the greatest ones, is the one of um, this kind of sinister self-portrait of him over... A pregnant belly. Right, yeah, yeah. And it's a pain, it's just a strange painting of considering pregnancy that doesn't take you where you expect to go. It feels um, genuinely sinister, but not like it's been forced into that. Mm. It feels like a, like a, it's just a strange, it's a painting that sets your mind working in many ways. And then formally, it's beautiful. This kind of like mountain at the, that anchors the bottom of the picture and the kind of delicate little like floral trio of fingers that rise up out of it that are just kind of an ambiguous, arbitrary gesture. It's, it's fantastic. Fantastic. Fantastic is a good word upon which to end um, that discussion. Audience, we'd love to hear some comments from you on David Humphrey and Aaron Gilbert. Um, and, and a reminder, just in case, while the mics are going round and you're um, deciding whether to put your hands up or not, that we are all invited to one Grand Army Plaza over the road, and that our next panel um, is taking place uh, the uh, first Wednesday in May um, with um, uh, some, some great speakers um, uh, who I may remember by the end of the evening. Um, <laughs> it's on the card for your next, uh, on the card that you receive for this panel. Um, Yes, anybody wanting to share with us? Yes, at the back row. That's marvelous. Thank you. And um, do give us your name again. Willie Kohler. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, that was great. I, I agreed with a lot of what I heard. Um, I was particularly interested in hearing what you had to say about the David Humphrey show. Um, I agree that the Jennifer Coates painting didn't fit, but th there's a way that I think it did fit. And uh, so I think there's an unsaid, unspoken piece, which is um, he uses projection. So that's a projected image. And even the abstractions are projected from drawings that he makes, that he traces. And so there's this kind of distance to every, that connects, I think, everything that he does, like a kind of uh, coolness. Um, and I think also that that uh, distance and, and coolness um, also kind of separates him out from surrealism in my mind. Like, I don't really, I, I get the connection, but I don't, like, for me, surrealism is kind of anxious and fraught. Like, you know, you mentioned Freud, um, you know, it tends more towards sort of darkness and, and kind of a, an emotional investment that I, I almost never feel in David's work. You know, it's, I, I feel much more of the kind of play and a kind of um, curiosity in how things could be twisted to become something else um, that, that sort of maybe sort of the, the uh, maybe it kind of sort of crosses briefly into surrealism, but it feels like a very different kind of concern to me. So I just wanted to bring up that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I think it would have been better if Aaron Gilbert did the Jennifer Coates painting. You know? <laughs> the way you said, this sort of sense of play, yeah. it's kind of like watching a comedic actor not do drama well or something like that. That's kind of how it feels to me. We, we should mention parenthetically that David has a second show up too 
in Brooklyn um, uh, with Keisha uh, Prelo Martin um, at um, what's it called? Uh, yeah, Vega Gasset Project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. More comments on the two artists, Gilbert and uh, Humphrey? Uh, yes, uh, Patricia. Um, just a quick comment, because I did go to David's other opening, and he was talking about this show at Fredericks and Fraser. And one thing he said was that he felt that his sculpture acted as a way to connect the paintings to the architecture, which I thought was an interesting comment. Um, I'm not going to editorialize on that, but I just thought I would share that. Valuable information. Though? Thank How? you for. Well, How? She, she, that's, you have to ask him. But. Um, <laughs> Or, or imagine it yourself. Um, <laughs> no. It's, it's unfair to shoot the messenger, as it were. I mean, thank you, well, Patricia Fabricant. Nah. Yeah, do I. <laughs> <laughs> um, great. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, followers, those of you who don't know, over the road, white building on the corner, and uh, see you in May. <laughs> thank you, panel. Thank <laughs> you.